Section 40 of Shakespeare Identified. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Fraser. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Manhood of de Vere, Final Example, Part 3. Now, it is the unique combination of this technical and spectacular quality with their supreme literary position that gives to Shakespeare's writings one at least of their distinctive features. Without unduly labouring the point, it will be necessary to determine the relationship which these two elements bear to each other in his most finished productions. Here, however, we may say that mankind has already settled the question for us, for it is upon their merits as literature that the fame and immortality of Shakespeare's dramas rest. Though the writer's first aim may have been to produce a perfect drama for stage purposes, in the course of his labours, by dint of infinite pains and the nature of his own genius, he produced a literature which has overshadowed the stage play. It is difficult, therefore, to imagine that the relationship of these two elements in the same work represents a simultaneous product and if we must choose between the theory of there being literature converted into plays, or plays converted into literature, on the review of the work no competent judge would hesitate to pronounce in favour of the latter supposition. We feel justified in claiming, then, that the best of the dramas pass through two distinct phases, being originally stage plays, doubtless of a high literary quality, which were subsequently transformed into the supreme literature of the nation. We further claim that the man who had the capacity to do this had the intelligence to know exactly what he was doing, and having created this literature he was not likely to have become so indifferent to its fate as he is represented by the Stratfordian tradition. Keeping in mind that our chief purpose at present is to see to what extent traces of the personality and life of Edward de Vere may be detected in the work of Shakespeare. We shall first summarise the position as it stands from the literary point of view at the opening of this third period. Having in his early years earned the distinction of being the best of the courtier poets of the early days of Queen Elizabeth's reign, and having then passed through a middle period occupied largely with work in connection with the drama, in which he earned the further distinction of being among the best in comedy, which must not be interpreted as meaning that he had confined himself to this domain, he enters in the maturity of his powers upon a third period, the longest of all. Of this period little is known, but what we do know is that the conditions of his life at the time were precisely those which would lead a poet of such powers to work upon his stores of incompleted dramas, giving them a more poetic form and a higher poetic finish. Are then the plays of Shakespeare such as to warrant the supposition of their having been produced in this way? Do they look like the work of one whose chief interest was to keep a theatre business going, or of one who was primarily a poet, not only in the large and general sense, but in the special and technical sense of an artist in words, making music out of the vocal qualities and cadences of speech? Again, to ask the question is to answer it. It is not only the number and quality of the lyrics scattered throughout the dramas that give to Shakespeare his high position as a poet. It is the poetry of the actual body of the dramas themselves, blank verse and rhyme alike, that determines his position. 
it is here that we have the poetry which raises its author to honours which he shares with homer and dante alone several of the plays can hardly be described otherwise than as collections of poems ingeniously woven together and to conceive of one such play being written as a continuous exercise starting with the first scene of the first act and ending with the last exeunt is an almost impossible supposition everything is much more suggestive of a poet creating his varied passages out of the multiplicity of his own moods and experiences and incorporating these into suitable parts of his different plays afterwards putting them through a final process of adjusting the parts and trimming and enriching the verse now of all the men we have had occasion to pass in review in the course of the investigations of which we are now treating we have met no one who could be considered as in any way fulfilling in his person and external circumstances the necessary conditions for performing such a work at this particular time as does edward de vere earl of oxford take the single play of love's labours lost examine the exquisite workmanship put into the versification alone and it becomes impossible to think of it as coming from a young man in a hurry to make plays and money think of it as coming from a man between the ages of forty and fifty-four working in retirement leisurely under no sense of pressure or material necessities upon work he had held in the rough more or less for several years and there immediately rises a sense of correspondence between the workman and his work it is not improbable that for the production of such work as he aimed at he felt the necessity of seclusion and a freedom from a sense of working under the public eye and this may have been not the least of the motives that led him to adopt and preserve his mask whether this was so or not there can be no doubt that during these years in which there was the largest outpouring of the great drama poems edward de vere was placed in circumstances more favourable to their production than any other man of the period of whom we have been able to learn such then are the activities which there is every reason to believe filled up the years which are at once the years of his maturity and the years of his retirement for nine years after his marriage no public appearance is recorded of him and then the silence is broken in a manner as significant to our present business as anything with which we have met as far back as fifteen ninety three shakespeare had dedicated to the earl of southampton his first lengthy poem venus and adonis in the following year he had repeated the honour in more affectionate terms in issuing his lucretia in the year sixteen o one there took place the ill-fated insurrection under the earl of essex an insurrection which its leaders stoutly maintained was aimed not at the throne but at the politicians amongst whom robert cecil son of burley was now prominent whether edward de vere approved of the rising or not it certainly represented social and political forces with which he was in sympathy we find then that the company of actors supposed to be managed by william shakespeare and occupied largely with staging shakespeare's plays the lord chamberlain's company was implicated in the rising through the earl of southampton's agency in order to stir up london and to influence the public mind in a direction favourable to the overturning of those in authority the company gave a performance of richard the second the earl of southampton subsidising the players in the rising itself southampton took an active part upon its collapse 
he was tried for treason along with its leader essex and it was then that edward de vere emerged from his retirement for the first time for nine years to take his position amongst the twenty-five peers who constituted the tribunal before whom essex and southampton were to be tried it is certainly a most important fact in connection with our argument that this outstanding action of oxford's later years should be in connection with the one contemporary that shakespeare has immortalized considering the direction in which his sympathies lay his coming forward at that time only admits of one explanation the forces arrayed against the earl of essex were much too powerful and he suffered the extreme penalty sentence was also passed on southampton but was commuted and he suffered imprisonment until the end of the reign now not far off it is somewhat curious that although shakespeare's company had been implicated he was not prosecuted or otherwise drawn into the trouble and his fortunes seem to have suffered no setback the special interest of this is that it gives us the first suggestion of a direct personal connection between edward de vere and the performance of shakespeare's plays through henry riothsley third earl of southampton for it clearly indicates an interest on the part of de vere in the very man to whom shakespeare had dedicated important poems as it was only with difficulty that riothsley's friends were able to save his life it is possible therefore that he owed much to oxford's influence his liberation immediately on the accession of james i may also have owed something to oxford's intervention for the latter's attitude to mary queen of scots must have had some weight with her son and his position as great chamberlain the functions of which he exercised at james's coronation would place him immediately into intimate relationship with the king his officiating at this important function is the last recorded public appearance of the subject of these pages as in investigations of this kind trifles may prove significant we may point out that just at the time when shakespeare was dedicating his great poems to henry riothsley and in the opinion of many addressing to him some of the tenderest sonnets that one man ever addressed to another edward de vere's only son was born now we have mentioned that de vere was proud of his descent and also that the de veres had come down in a succession of aubrey's johns and roberts for centuries almost like a royal dynasty we should naturally have expected therefore that he would have given to his only son one of the great family names yet in all the centuries of the de veres there is but one henry henry the son of edward de vere born at the very time when shakespeare was dedicating great poems to henry riothsley the metaphor of the first heir which occurs in the short dedication of venus and adonis to riothsley would also be specially apposite to the circumstances of the time and as shakespeare speaks of southampton as the godfather of the first heir of my invention it would certainly be interesting to know whether henry riothsley was godfather to oxford's heir henry de vere it is not necessary to our argument that he should have been but if it be found that he had actually held that position the inference would be obvious and conclusive we have discovered a reference to the baptism as having taken place at stoke newington so that it ought not to be impossible to find out who the sponsors were if the reader will further examine the sonnets round about the one which makes reference to the dedication 
he will probably be surprised at the number of allusions to childbirth as it is part of our task to indicate something of the parties and personal relationships of those days we have pointed out the spontaneous affinity of oxford with the younger earls of essex and southampton all three of whom having been royal wards under the guardianship of burleigh were most hostile to the cecil influence at court on the other hand we have raleigh along with robert cecil representing the force which essex wished to oust of raleigh we must point out in relation to the essex rising that so malicious had been his attitude both at the time of the earl's prosecution and even in the moment of the latter's execution that he brought upon himself the odium of the populace it appears that when cecil was disposed to relent in relation to essex raleigh was most insistent for his punishment and when the unfortunate earl had won the queen's consent to an execution in private raleigh made it his business to be a spectator of his enemy's execution the conduct of francis bacon too had been even more indecent than had been that of his uncle burleigh towards somerset it is interesting to note therefore that the fortunes of the two men whose conduct was most open to censure in this matter suffered complete collapse in the course of the following reign the publicity of raleigh's execution being a fitting punishment for his unseemly intrusion upon the privacy of the execution of essex it is necessary to point out these things if we are to have a correct judgment of the men with whom the earl of oxford had to deal and upon the strength of whose relationships with oxford most of the impressions of him met with in books have evidently been formed whatever opinions may be held about these things it is clear from the point of view of the problem of shakespearean authorship that the famous trial of the earl of essex assumes quite a thrilling interest standing before the judges was the only living personality that shakespeare has openly connected with the issue of his works and towards whom he has publicly expressed affection henry riothsley the most powerful force at work in seeking to bring about the destruction of the accused was the possessor of the greatest intellect that has appeared in english philosophy one to whom in modern times has actually been attributed the authorship of shakespeare's plays francis bacon and sitting on the benches amongst the judges was none other we believe than the real shakespeare himself intent on saving if possible one of the very men whom bacon was seeking to destroy some artist of the future surely will find here a theme to fire his enthusiasm and furnish scope for his genius and ambition before leaving the question of the rebellion and trial of the earl of essex we shall barely draw attention to an aspect of it which affects a theory of shakespearean authorship that we have not deemed necessary to discuss at any length the conduct of francis bacon in respect to the trial of essex has been discussed ad nauseam and is therefore too well known to need describing nor is it our business to enter into the ethics of his action it is wholly incredible however that he could have been working secretly as a playwriter hand in glove with the very dramatic company that was implicated in the rising and that one of his plays should have been employed as an instrument in the business again something is known of the nature of bacon's previous friendship with the earl of essex but however cordial it may have been it is quite on a lower plane as compared with shakespeare's feelings towards southampton the terms in which the dramatist addresses the nobleman who was being tried along with essex 
are those of personal endearment and we must hope for the credit of human nature that to all the treachery implied in the idea of turning upon a friend whose insurrection had been assisted by his own drama and dramatic associates according to the baconian theory it was impossible that he could have added the heartlessness of prosecuting one his love for whom he had already immortalized by his poems nor should we like to think that the very man whom he had immortalized in this way could in turn have so delighted in wounding him and in seeking his downfall for the earl of southampton was amongst those who sought and ultimately brought about the downfall of lord bacon if to this we add that the most of shakespeare's sonnets are supposed to be addressed to the earl of southampton and that these were put into circulation without protest seven years after the trial at a time when the feeling of southampton towards bacon was very bitter we have as tumbled a moral situation as it is possible to conceive if we suppose that bacon was shakespeare the decisive answer to the baconian theory therefore it seems to us is henry wriothesley moreover southampton's interest in william shakespeare and the shakespearean plays suffered no decline as a result of his trial and imprisonment for we find him immediately upon his liberation arranging for a private performance of love's labours lost for the entertainment of the new queen a most unlikely thing for him to have done if its author had been a former friend who had treacherously sought to destroy him on the other hand unless the lord great chamberlain one of the best in comedy who had recently shown an interest both in southampton and the new occupants of the throne was physically incapable of being present it is safe to assume apart from the special theories we are now advancing that he would be amongst the select party of spectators at the performance in wriothesley's house a more striking fact connecting the earl of southampton directly with edward de vere and the work of shakespeare we reserve for the chapter in which we shall have to review shakespeare's sonnets in relation to our argument the mention of the change that had taken place in the occupancy of the english throne suggests a most significant fact in connection with our problem when queen elizabeth died the poets of the day who had loaded her with most absurd flattery during her lifetime naturally vied with one another in doing honour to the departed monarch we have elsewhere remarked that we have no single line of de vere's paying compliments to elizabeth either during her lifetime or after her death a fact which arouses no great surprise a similar absence of any word of praise from the pen of shakespeare has however always been a matter of considerable surprise his silence upon the subject of the queen's death provoked comment among his contemporaries and chettle the personal friend of william shakespeare made a direct appeal to him under the name of Melisert, to drop from his honeyed muse one sable tear to mourn her death that graced her desert this personal intimacy of chettle and shakespeare we remark in passing is another stratfordian supposition for which there is no sufficient warrant and that chettle's Melisert was shakespeare is only another surmise the honeyed muse was at any rate unresponsive and no sable tear appeared considering the whole circumstances of william shakespeare's supposed rapid rise and early access to royal favour it is difficult to account for his silence at such a time on any other supposition than that he did not write because he could not whilst the man whose instrument he was was not disposed to write verses 
for the mere pleasure of adding to the glory of William Shakespeare. End of section 40. Recording by Daniel Fraser.